I would have to say I'm most proud of about the Farmling Project is this student community and this group of really smart, capable young people who want to make a difference even if they haven't learned how to do this stuff. And by this stuff, I mean, you know, we're directing trucks, we're cold calling people, we're, you know, writing grant proposals for, you know, ag grants, and all of it is new and, and tough and strange. And so doing it with this big family uh, of people who make you feel more capable than you felt in any other context, I mean, it's, it's really magical. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the 501 Hustle. I am your host, Vivek, and we are here today with Jordan Hartzell. How are you, Jordan? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Super excited to have you. I love what you guys are doing. Thanks so much for having me. Jordan is from Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and currently on a gap year from her studies at Brown University, where she concentrates in applied math computer science. So I'm Jordan. I would be a senior at Brown where I study computer science, applied math, but I'm currently on a gap year working on the FarmLink project full time. She joined the FarmLink project in April of 2020 to help build the website and handle food delivery logistics. I started out working on the website. I was making a toggle that helped the page animate as you scrolled through it and was really interested in our delivery logistics and our system operations. She is now the project manager of FarmLink's product team, where she's working to design a sustainable business strategy and software tool to facilitate FarmLink's food rescue operations in the long term. And now I'm the project manager for our product team, where I'm developing a sustainable business model, a strategy for future operations, and a software tool to facilitate our food moving in the long term. When she's not working on FarmLink, she loves hiking and playing with her two boxer dogs. These guys have been featured in the Washington Post, Fox News, CNBC, the New York Times, ABC News, and a bunch of others. Those are just the big ones. And their team is now over 250 college students. Uh, so thank you all so much for being here and giving us your time. Can you just give us a little big picture of, as to what you guys do? We started back in April of 2020, and this was when students were sent home from universities and had a lot more free time on their hands. And a lot of that free time for us, as I'm sure for everybody, was spent reading the news. And we saw a lot of articles in the news about food waste happening on farms. And this was because restaurants were shut down, school cafeterias were shut down. And those places are buyers of produce, which means that they have big contracts that say how much they're going to buy from farmers. And when restaurants shut down, those contracts were dropped. So farmers ended up with a lot more food in their warehouses, a lot more food in their fields. Um, and that affects the rest of the supply chain down the line, whether it's the laborers who are harvesting the food, the processors who are washing the fruits and vegetables, the packing sheds that are making sure that things are in consumer packaging. And so as things started to break down, there was a ton of surplus on farms again. And another big section of news that was has been a problem in the U.S. for a long time, but was especially brought to light in the pandemic was the issue of food insecurity. So folks were relying on food banks at greater frequency than they were used to. And there were also, a, there was a huge growth in the percent of the population that was relying on the charitable food space for the first time. 
And it seemed kind of strange that there were all these perfectly good fruits and vegetables going to waste on one side. And on the other side, there were all of these people who were you know, suddenly in need of food and didn't have the financial stability they were used to, you know, perhaps were getting laid off from their jobs because of closings with the pandemic. And it seemed like one problem might be able to solve another. So really early on, I was working with my teammates to cold call farmers and we were picking up the phone and saying, hey, you know, we've read about this in the news. Do you have surplus? If so, can we buy it? What do you need? And so we were raising funds from friends and family. We're lucky to have a couple hits early on where we had some of our growers say, yeah, we actually do have this problem. And if you, you know, pay us X to cover the picking and packing out cost or the PPO, we can move it. And at the beginning, it was really our volunteers who were absolutely instrumental in making making the stuff happen at the beginning. They were hiring Penske trucks themselves and going to farms, picking up pallets of food and trucking it to food banks that they had been volunteering with since they were kids. And we realized that though perhaps renting the trucks wasn't the best way, the most efficient way to do this, that the model was solid. And we were sponsored pretty early on by an organization in Los Angeles called Food Finders, and they were our fiscal sponsor until we received our 501c3. And with their partnership, we were able to scale up. And scaling up meant making more cold calls. It meant forming relationships with more food banks outside of the California area. And eventually, we assembled a team of students who all kind of understood this system of making calls, making connections, trying to understand the agricultural and transportation spaces and connect food from point A to point B. And we were also lucky to have an early partnership with Uber Freight. And so we started moving, instead of a couple pallets at a time, we started moving full semi-loads, which is about 20 pallets or 40,000 pounds of fresh produce. And over the summer and throughout the fall and up to this point, we've been able to move uh, over 30 million pounds of fresh produce um, in over 44 states. 30 million? 30 million. That yeah. is unbelievable. It's a it's a hard number to wrap my head around, but it, we feel incredibly grateful to all the all the folks who made it happen. So how much additional waste was there during the pandemic than before? Do you have any numbers or stats on like the increase of food waste? So I'm just going to quote directly this article, which is called Dumped Milk, Smashed Eggs, Plowed Vegetables, Food Waste of the Pandemic, because this was one that got a lot of the students who founded the FarmLink Project really passionate about this. Um, and actually, one of the, the authors, Michael Corkery, was the one who facilitated our feature in the New York Times, and he's a, a Brown alum, which is really exciting. Um, and they said... The amount of waste is staggering. The nation's largest dairy cooperative, Daily Farmers of America, estimates that farmers are dumping as many as 3.7 million gallons of milk each day. A single chicken processor is smashing 750,000 unhatched eggs every week. And that's end quote. That's unbelievable to know that that much food's being wasted and then you hit it like that much food insecurity going on in America. It's right. not like there's a shortage of supply. Exactly. And the the thing to make things complicated, because it does seem like a, you know, a plug in a socket, why aren't these fixing each other? But if you think about milk in a cafeteria, you can think even, you know, about the Radiant Brown, you have these big machines. And if you open up the machine, it has a two gallon bag of milk. And so if you can imagine having surplus of a two of two gallon bags of milk, 
the place that would be able to put them into individual cartons or gallon jugs for a grocery store is closed because of the pandemic. And then there are people who would be willing to take in milk, but they wouldn't be able to take in a two gallon bag. And the same happened across the industry where, you know, if you have a hundred pound bag of potatoes or a 50 pound bag of potatoes, you can't expect a family to be able to take that in and make use of it. It gets more complicated across different types of produce. So you can also think of a, a flat of eggs, which is two and a half dozen, and it doesn't really fit in a standard family size refrigerator, but it does fit in the industrial refrigerator of a restaurant. Mm. So when you were figuring out what you were just telling me about what types of food are being wasted and the reasons why, did that help you determine what type of farmer or what type of produce to go after first? Or how did you discover like who to help first? Yeah, totally. That's a good question because across there's there's agriculture across the country and in different places grow different things well. And we started with California in large part because a big chunk of our team was in California and also because it's it's summer um, or it was early spring rather. And we had some success in that region. So we kept making calls out West. But to be honest, we weren't terribly discriminatory by type of produce. We really wanted to get as much food as possible. We did, though, think about the nutrition value of different types of produce. So if we can move a lot of peaches versus if we can move a lot of potatoes when people are hungry potatoes can carry more weight you know they have more nutrients they can substitute more easily for part of a meal than say a peach or a berry even though that type of produce is also important to have in a balanced diet how are you building these relationships with farmers i know you said cold calls but what does that really look like does that like does that mean driving out to the to the farmer and going and sitting down and having a conversation with them I think the biggest thing that that we learned, and it really has been and continues to be a learning process, most of the folks working on the Farmling Project don't have backgrounds in agriculture. And so the most important thing that we ask of all of our volunteers and that we continue to hold ourselves to every day is to listen to our partners and to develop systems that are responsive to their needs and their experiences. So at the beginning, it could be a little tough to get on the phone and then try to articulate what we thought we could do to help. Uh, and some folks, that wasn't really what they needed. And I think that helped us learn how to hone our ask and how to hone perhaps our offer too. And our offer was that we had raised funds and we would be able to pay for their produce, typically less than wholesale, but would be able to pay for their produce and help them recoup the costs of planting, of harvesting, of you know the labor that goes into both of those processes of the packaging, just kind of upkeep of their farm in general. But we would work with them to settle on a price that met both of our needs. So FarmLinks needs to have a long runway, sustainable operations into the future, to buy as much food as possible, because the more food that we buy, the more food that we can distribute to communities in need. But it was also our responsibility our responsibility to make sure that we were injecting as much capital as possible back into the agricultural industry because folks on both sides of the equation were hurting as the supply chain broke down in the pandemic so what we didn't want to do was try to undercut the prices that they were asking and, and kind of go as low as possible because they should be paid for their work and their labor needs to be respected so making a deal or securing produce that we know that we could move from the farm level to a food bank or another community feeding organization ended up being fairly case by case. And it took us a pretty long time to develop a sense for how we might develop a system that would work across the board. But to be honest, it's, it's really, it's really case by case because every farm, every business operates a bit differently and has different needs. 
What are you doing right now with deliveries? It's still the same, uh, even though you guys have rapidly grown. And also, why hasn't existing infrastructure helped with this issue? Or is there really not as much as we would think? Yeah, certainly. So to answer the first part of your question about transportation, at the beginning, the first few deals, the first few deliveries, some of our volunteers were you know, renting Penske trucks, were mm-hmm. um, driving box trucks and, and, and just trying their best to connect the dots and get the food where it needed to go. And then we started asking our grower partners whether they had transportation assets. So if they had their own local company that they like to use for transportation, if they had hired folks in their actual own transportation assets that we could use and pay them for their time of loading and unloading and transportation. And then we started learning more about third-party logistics companies and were sponsored by Uber Freight. So we were moving full truckloads. And as we evolve, we realized that we can reduce transportation costs by asking the food banks to actually come and pick up the food at a certain location. And this wasn't necessarily possible at the very beginning of our work when we didn't have food bank contacts across the country. But now that we have a robust network of a couple hundred food banks, we're confident that we're able to find a food bank or another community feeding organization that's close enough to the point of pickup for the surplus that we can actually ask them to come and pick it up. So that helps reduce transportation costs and makes use of their their assets for picking up food too. And then your second question was about kind of why why is this happening and like why why does farmland have to exist? So we always say that the farmland project is trying to put ourselves out of business. And that's a funny thing for an organization to say. So there are some really interesting and hardworking and, and valuable organizations working in the food space that deal with food rescue. And their main focus is ensuring that there isn't as much waste throughout the supply chain. And this happens from the farm level all the way to individual consumers. And we, to be completely honest, we would never be where we are without the expertise and support of other folks within the food food industry. Um, and one of the things that I've come to be so grateful for um, in working in the food space for the past year is how supportive these organizations are of one another. So Food Rescue US is one of the ones that we've been working with Um and there are countless others that would be kind of too many to name in this in this context. But there are organizations that work to manage food waste. But the produce industry is so complicated that it's difficult to implement a blanket situation or perhaps even design a blanket situation for different geographies, different types of businesses, different produce types. And so each grower or each produce industry has their own system for dealing with waste. And so I think apples kind of make up a good example to talk about the ways that waste is dealt with. And apples often can be a kind of vertically integrated type of of produce. And what I mean by that is a primary market for growing apples might be a grocery store. And grocery stores typically take what's called grade one. So the, the prettiest, roundest, reddest apples, your snow white apples. But Trees don't don't grow all of those all the time. And you might get some that are lumpy or weird or have some bruises. And those are called grade two. And they're perfectly good to eat, but consumer specifications are so high these days because folks don't want a bruised apple that you can no longer expect to see those things in the grocery store, which means that growers can't expect grocery marts to want to buy those type of, of apples. And so there are other markets for these. This includes 
the imperfect produce market. There's some really interesting startups and and um, or other organizations working in the space of imperfect produce, whether that's individual to consumer or whether that's kind of a B to B imperfect or grade two produce um, produce company. And aside from that, a grower might consider taking grade two produce and having it further processed to be frozen. So you might have a frozen apple market, or you might be able to make apple juice concentrate that's frozen. And then even further down, and by further down, I mean, you're making less money for your product as you sift down through these different types of markets. You might have you know, secondary tertiary, tertiary types of markets like apple juice, um, dried apple chips, apple sauce, wow. and all of these things don't require your snow white apple. And so it allows you to take, you know, to, to make as little waste as possible and mm-hmm. still recoup as much of the cost that you've incurred throughout the growing process. But this is pretty hard with something like a leafy green, because if you have perfectly good lettuce that's in a grocery store, and then you have some maybe spottier lettuce that's a little yellow at the edges, or the leaves are bigger than the grocery store wants to buy, what do you do with it? You know, you can't make make applesauce out of lettuce as people typically don't buy frozen romaine. Uh, and so that's where the farmland project wants to play. But again, there there's lots of places where surplus can be generated. And there's also a lot of dialogue around the terms waste and loss, whether waste at different parts of the supply chain or loss at different parts of the supply chain is actually a bad thing. So for instance, a lot of growers see leaving their harvested food in the field as not as big of a hit on their operations as let's say a dropped contract further down the line. And by further down the line, I mean, it's incurred more costs. It's incurred more. Uh, it's sunk in more environmental resources. A lot of labor has been put into that product, and suddenly, when it goes to waste, all of those inherent spent or sunk costs go with it. Whereas, if you are in the field and you walk by an apple on the tree, or perhaps more pertinent to this example, let's say you know a, an egg, eggplant on the ground, and it's too small or it's shaped in a way that you know folks aren't going to want to buy in your industry then you might just walk by it and not pick it. Or you might pick it and put it back into the field and use it to enrich the soil. And so that it's kind of interesting because throughout the supply chain, different points generate loss. And each of those points has both a unique outlet and kind of a, a unique perspective from the grower of how bad that is. And what we want to do is try to think about ways that we can manage and reduce loss throughout the entire supply chain. Because in this country, we grow enough food to feed everybody in the world. And a lot of it is left in the field, or a lot of it generated as waste for different reasons that I've kind of described throughout the supply chain. But it's it's just incredibly complex. And uh, I think a lot of folks really don't understand how our food is made and all the different steps that go into getting food ready for your table. And this includes me. I've learned all of this in in working for FarmLink. I didn't, I didn't know any of this before I started. And it's just a it's a really complex industry. And when the logistics of of moving everything and the ticking time clock of a perishable piece of, of produce get thrown into the mix, it can get it can get quite difficult to manage. Clarify this a little bit more for me. So you're, there's different points of loss. So like the person might leave the eggplant on the ground or the bruised apple might go and, and become applesauce, but you know, this destroyed lettuce, like can't really do much with it. What point at waste are you going for? 
Certainly. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great question and a really important one. And I hope this doesn't complicate it further, but the way I think about it is splitting the supply chain into three parts. And so I'll try to put the examples that I just said into one of those buckets so that it's more clear. And I'm going to go from the farm as far down to the point of sale. So this means at the grocery store level. The first is infield loss. And this is when food isn't even harvested because again, the more the further a piece of, of product goes throughout the supply chain, the more environmental resources it, it takes in. So your water, for instance, the more money you've incurred and spent on getting that product ready for consumption, the labor that goes into it is greater. And that's that's tied to cost, but also um, separate and important to consider on its own. And so infield loss means produce that hasn't even left the point of harvest. And I, I will say too, that this is this is a tough thing for a grower because they they have so much respect for their work and for their craft. Um, and it's, it's a really complicated process. And so leaving food in the field can be a heart-wrenching thing. And some of the growers who we've spoken to have said um, that it's, you know, it's miserable to put so much care into growing something that you really want people to be able to enjoy and, and use as nourishment. And then leaving it in the field is tough, but it's better than harvesting it having it go all the way throughout the supply chain and then having it go to waste. So infield loss is the first. The second we've called very loosely and not officially, but uh, post-harvest pre-retail surplus. So post-harvest means it's already out of the ground. It's already incurred the pick and pack out cost or the PPO. And then pre-retail means it hasn't yet left. It hasn't yet been loaded onto a truck, say, to go to a grocery store or a distribution center. And then the last is what I've been focusing on recently, and this is called a rejected load. So when produce has already been harvested, it's been packed, processed, you know, chopped up, whatever's happening to it, and then it goes onto a truck and is sent to a place like a grocery store, a place like a distribution center for a grocery store, a wholesaler, for instance, uh, is another example there. Then a lot of contracts that growers have with buyers at those, say, retail or wholesale companies, those contracts say that before we take the food into our warehouse, we can look at it, inspect it, and turn it away. And that's completely within our right. And it's your problem. And your problem being the shipper. So the shipper is the grower or somebody representing the grower who's getting the food from that point A to the point B. And at point B, if it's rejected, suddenly the grower has this big problem on their hands. And to make things even worse, it's not actually on their hands, it's on the driver's hands. And so now you have a carrier in the loop. And a carrier is somebody who's either operating you know, a refrigerated semi-truck or a logistics company that's employing folks who are driving the trucks. And so you have the produce in one place and it's affecting the driver because they may have another route following the one that they're on, so they can't get produce off their truck. You have the grower the shipper, the person who's responsible for the produce, who's still fiscally responsible for it. And so they're paying any fees that are incurred at the dock, at the retailing end, at this point B. They're paying if they have to dump the food into a landfill. Typically, that's a fee. Um, They may be paying for the transportation costs going from point B all the way back to point A. And this whole time, they're wasting their own time. And for a lot of organizations, or for a lot of industries, or much like a lot of industries, in agriculture, time is money. And so the time spent doing that is also um, can also be a tough thing. 
And rejections happen for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes for ones like, you know, the food spoiled on the way, the the truck had a malfunction and, you know, the refrigeration capacity turned off. And so now everything can't be eaten. It might be for things like insect damage. And in those cases, that's a pretty legitimate reason not to accept food. But in other cases, it's for really strict product specifications. So for instance, if you have strawberries that have too much of a white shoulder. And so the top of a strawberry is called a shoulder where it curves down like this. And if too much of that is white, grocery stores say, no, 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 we're not going to make money on this because people won't pick these ones out of the shelf. So we're, we're not going to take it in. And a lot of times rejections are actually perfectly edible good produce. And so we want to be able to handle produce throughout the supply chain, whether it's in-field, post-harvest pre-retail, or rejected loads. Most of our work though so far has been in this post-harvest pre-retail space. So the food has already been you know, picked out of the ground and it's packaged and we're helping the growers recover the costs of that process, but still get the food to the people who need it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role um, at FarmLink and and kind of the impact or influence you, you've had on the team? Yeah, certainly. So my role right now is as project manager of something that we're calling our product team or our accelerator team. And we're calling it that because we're part of an accelerator that's sponsored by the Kroger company, Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation, and is in partnership with IDEO and with the World Wildlife Fund. And the goal of this work was to have six months to launch a minimum viable product or an MVP, which represents both a sustainable business strategy that would allow FarmLink to rely on another source of revenue that's not just individual donations and and foundation grants, as well as a software tool that would facilitate our own operations. And one thing I want to note is that a lot of folks our age like to start with software because it's incredibly effective and and really powerful in solving a lot of problems that we have. But we're really cognizant of the issue of coming to someone who's been doing work for a long time and saying, here, I have an app to fix your problem. And especially in the agriculture industry where things are incredibly complex, uh, work is spread over tons of different stakeholders who hold different roles across different types of produce, which change uh, you know, throughout the year as different produce types are harvested in, in areas. And I'm running out of breath because it gets so complex. Um, but you know, we, we didn't want to come and say, hey, here's a software platform that's going to fix all your problems. Yeah. And so We now talk about our work on the product team, on this accelerator, as a build on what has been a year of market research or operational research. So we've been doing this work of of food recovery and rescue and of hunger assistance for about a year now. And so we've learned a lot about what it takes to do it manually. And we understand now what parts of it perhaps would be made more efficient through a digital platform and who has time to interact with that and how they want to interact with it. And even in building this this, uh, digital tool, we're really aware that everybody who will be using it should be part of the design process. And so we've learned a lot from bringing mock-ups of screens of the tool that we're building to facilitate our delivery logistics and operations. We'll, We'll bring that to our growers, to people working at food banks, to kind of different stakeholders across the way. But my role is really to make sure that what we're building software-wise is really on solid foundations strategy-wise and that we're representing what the FarmLink project wants in the long term and how we'll operate in the long term. The the community is really important there. So we want to build something that the community can use. 
So to everyone listening, as she talks about trying to keep the community involved and being inspired by the people that are around her, that type of vibe or, or belief that she has has definitely come through with the rest of the team. And this email I got was from Aiden, um, who is also on the FarmLink project. And he was supposed to be on this podcast with Jordan, actually. But I got an email from Aiden about like an hour before the podcast. And this is what he said. He said, I just spoke with Jordan and decided to have the podcast only feature her today. Jordan founded the project as well and has not had her voice shared enough. One of the many things Jordan has done was join a very male-dominated team early and was vocal and formative enough to make FarmLink the welcoming, supportive, communicative place it is now. And, and I can see it. Like I can see in the way that you're answering, the, the perspectives that you're considering, the way that you're breaking it down, that you've clearly made an impact on the community, whether it's internal for FarmLink or external with all the stakeholders you're working with. And so I just wanted you to touch on a little bit more about what it was like to join the team when it was more male-dominated and how you were able to kind of bring about that welcome, supporting, communicating um, community internally, and then how you're bringing that externally to the people you're working with. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And thank you for reading that. I, every day, I'm, I'm really thankful that I have teammates who are growing with me and who you know consider things like this um i also felt kind of the warm fuzzy feeling when i got that email and and when i spoke to aiden about this and was so um i i feel again just just really grateful to have such a supportive team to your question about what it was like coming on at the beginning you know i was i don't know so we we had another woman on the team at this at the time stella delp and she is a light in my life in a lot of ways and in FarmLink especially she has been the one to set the tone that you communicate when you need to and when you feel like your needs you know aren't being met or your voice isn't being heard and my tendency has been i think to take a little bit of a backseat especially when i'm i'm the new face in the room and so i think early on stella and a few others noticed that i was a bit timid um, and i actually had a, a one-on-one conversation with her where she really encouraged me to speak up and 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 really had my back. And so I think having someone to support me on the team from the get-go and to verify that I had good ideas and that I was, you know, that I belonged on the team, it was more, it was, it was just really empowering to have a, a partner in crime there. But I think joining joining anything, whether it's a you know a class in a space where you are not seeing other folks that look like you, or whether it's a completely new field like agriculture was to me and you know I was it was a pretty unique thing that it was new to everybody on the team when we joined because all of us were just kind of starting it from the ground up just really I don't know just just supporting one another and hearing one another and and realizing that you have a lot to grow and a lot to learn no matter how loud your voice is or how comfortable you feel speaking up so I think what I would say more generally about joining from the beginning was just that I was nervous because I was with all of these very smart people who seemed like they knew what they were doing. And it took, you know, a few more meetings to realize that we were all yeah. <laughs> really unsure of what we were doing, you know, and it that was like they what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. You guys are growing rapidly. I'm sure there's got to be different opportunities and um, maybe internship opportunities or at least just collab opportunities uh, that you guys are looking for. And we're going to highlight that on our website and Instagram. But if you could verbally go over maybe any positions you're looking for, how people in our community uh, could get involved with what you guys are doing. 
Yeah, totally. So our website is farmlingproject.org and there's a tab at the top. That's a really good website, by the way, <laughs> like it's, it's really well done and you'll learn a lot about the issues that they're trying to solve. So definitely visit it, but sorry, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> huge shouts to our creative team. They put a lot of time and, and effort into that. So thank you for the shouts there. Yes, yeah, so you can go to the Get Involved tab and there's a couple different ways that you can work with the Farmling Project. One is what we call our power hours. So you can come on with Farmling volunteers and help us cold call farmers. And we'll talk to you about uh, what it means to make a cold call and what those conversations will look like. We'll be on Zoom playing music. So this is a pretty unique volunteer opportunity. And we've uh, had a lot of really interesting conversations with folks, both as volunteers and with those new volunteers and the growers who they're contacting when they join us. And then another one too is really just volunteering in your community if it's safe for you and something that you feel comfortable doing, whether it's at your local food bank or perhaps learning about the agriculture that exists in or around your community and and finding ways to limit food waste in your own life. One of the biggest places of food loss throughout the supply chain occurs in the home. And so if you can think more deeply about the ways that you interact with food, both how it's grown, you know, from the farm to the table, and also, you know, what you're leaving on your plate, that is a huge way to get involved with the Farmlink Project. But you know, follow us on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, wherever you wherever you do social media, uh, look up the Farmlink Project. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Had a great time. I hope you had fun. Me too. It was so great to talk to you. Awesome. Cool. Well, you're you're a great person and everybody, I, I encourage you all to definitely reach out to the Farmlink Project, but specifically Jordan. Jordan's just super fun. Um, had a great time. <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode and we will catch you next week. Have a great weekend.